1: Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. We have Michael Ames in studio, the co-author of American Cypher, Bo Bergdahl, and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan, which is co-written with Matt Farewell. out now. This show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's great stuff on there that's heavily discounted but a lot of the items sell out quick, so you really got to act now. For example, we've got a few more Fry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and Crate Club Fishing Spears, but other items like that Gerber Multi-Tool, those are gone, so it's up on its own section on crateclub.us, or you can go to store.crateclub.us to check it all out. That's store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear you're going to love on AirDrop. Uh, With that, excellent response to the last episode with Bob Bear. Really enjoyed doing that one. We covered so much ground, so you got to go back and listen to that one if you haven't already, but it's getting a ton of plays, a lot of attention, and as I said, in studio this episode, we have Michael Ames, once again, the co-author of American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl, and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan, and uh, we've had on some of the guys who served with Bo Bergdahl, um, like we've had on uh, Matt Vierkant before, and I think it's interesting to revisit this with this book that just yeah. came out a couple of months back, because... I think even initially on from what we knew and, and spoke about, there's just a lot of misinformation that has now been kind of shot down. And we have a better idea of why Bo Bergdahl was released and, and what went on. So I'm excited to get into this.
2: Yeah. I, I When he was first released, you know, I interviewed a few people from his platoon. I'm sure you interviewed a lot of people. Um, and. I mean, just like my cursory look at how all of that went down, it's like, this is bizarre, it's such a weird story. Um, so I'm glad you wrote this book,
0: you know? Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, it was many years in the making. Farwell and I both had personal connections to it. Um, seemed like the story chose us as much as we chose it.
2: Yeah, h- how did that happen?
0: How did you get involved in this? Well, so I was living and working in Bergdahl's hometown of Haley, Idaho, as a local journalist when he was captured. Uh, His father, Bob, was my UPS driver. Holy shit. And I was the editor of the Sun Valley Magazine at the time. Uh, Haley's about 12 miles south of Sun Valley, ski resort town. Um, And I moved out of Sun Valley. He was still in captivity at, at the time, but when he was released... Obviously, this turned into a major firestorm, and I had done some reporting already. I, had, I, had, uh, I was actually working for AOL News as a political reporter freelancer when Bob Bergdahl gave a, uh, an unannounced speech at a Republican fundraiser in Idaho in 2010. And um, I had that material, and I started reporting on it, and I ended up reporting on it for several outlets and magazines and then teamed up with Farwell, who had worked on it for Rolling Stone with Michael Hastings. So in 2012, they did kind of the first deep dive on Bergdahl. And then three years later, 2015, shortly about six months after he was released, I did the next deep dive story on it for Newsweek. So we each had this. We kind of bookended the thing from a journalistic standpoint, and then we teamed up. Makes sense. Combined forces. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's how the book came about. And I, I mean, it looks pretty extensive. The obviously the amount of work you guys did on it. <laughs> I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, between 800 and 900 endnotes. So yeah, it's, it's how, how many interviews do you think you did uh, for the book? I mean, together, dozens. Oh, probably over a hundred. I mean, between the two of us, definitely in in the hundreds. Uh, we, I mean, I spoke to dozens of people in Idaho who grew up with him. Um, we spoke to dozens of people in the army who knew him or were involved in the searches in some way. And then we just kept going up the chain until you know, the, the nine months before the book was done. I was in D.C. meeting with Chuck Hagel, talked to Admiral Michael Mullen on the phone, went to every legal hearing at Fort Bragg. So we we had this thing covered.
1: Did, did you by any chance to talk to the guys we did, uh, Cody Full and Matt Vierkant? Because they've been on with us.
0: You know, uh, Cody Full never responded to uh, m- my outreach, um, but I talked to a lot of other guys in the platoon and and even more in Blackfoot Company. But in the platoon, we talked to Gerald Sutton, Joseph Coe, uh, Evan Butow, uh Josh Cornelison, just in 2nd Platoon. In Blackfoot Company, talked to a lot more guys who were involved. I mean, a whole bunch. And then... The the kind of breakthrough source for me with the Newsweek reporting was a guy named Sergeant Johnny Rice who was in 3rd Platoon Blackfoot Company who was the one who – he was a big source for me at the start when I was um, – because he, he, he kind of picked up on what was going on pretty quick when they were having them go on these wild goose chases for Bergdahl after he had, as he said, common sense dictates he's no longer even here. <laughs> Why are they sending us to go look for a guy when it's pretty clear he's over the border in Pakistan? So once I met Johnny Rice, that was that that was a major breakthrough, and he's been a source and you know um, a big help all along. Well, since this story is so uh, convoluted,
2: the, the the waters have been muddied so much. Uh, if it's okay with you, start kind of at the beginning. Like, where Bur- Bo Bergdahl came out of your hometown? Like, who who was this guy? How did he end up in the military?
0: Yeah. Well, I uh, I grew up on the East Coast, but I, I moved to his hometown right after college basically okay. as a ski bum. I was a glorified <laughs> ski bum. I was working as a reporter at the local paper and teaching skiing, waiting tables, that whole thing. Um, Bo Bergdahl was known as an eccentric kid, but there were, it was a pretty eccentric town. So he wasn't that far off the mark in that town. But he rode his bike everywhere, I mean everywhere, 40, 50 miles in a day wasn't weird for him. He was super fit, he knew a lot about weapons and guns, he worked at the gun club, but he was eccentric. He also was in the ballet, the local ballet, and he took it really, really seriously. And so he was trying to find his way in life, and he had these odyssey years where he was saving, saving up cash, doing odd jobs in the valley, and then traveling around the world trying to find his purpose. He went to, as some of the stuff you may have heard, or it's all in the book, of course, he joined the French Foreign Legion. He thought he was going to join the French Foreign Legion. Um, he uh, enrolled in the, he enlisted in the Coast Guard, but he washed out of boot camp three weeks into it with an anxiety breakdown. Um, he was, and, um, at one point he, but he never gave up the idea that he was going to be a, he was going to be an operator. He was going to be a tier one guy. And to the extent that a, a, one of the guys who was a big shooter at the gun club in Haley was this guy named John Shaw, who we write about in the book. I don't know if you have ever heard of him. He was a award winning marksman, um, guy from Memphis. And he opened a, a shooting academy south of Memphis. Mid South. Yes, I've been there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he also has he opened kind of a Western outpost in in Idaho, and he was good friends with Bo's dad because Bo's dad was his UPS driver. So they're friends. He he the the two families went out to dinner together. They knew each other. You know, John Shaw told me that he met them. Uh, Bo's sister at the time when they met was dating this guy named Michael Albrecht, who had grown up in a very religious Christian household, just like Bo and was going to the Naval Academy because he wanted to be a fighter pilot. Shaw couldn't have been more impressed with the whole family. He said, you know, this looks like an all-American military-oriented family to me. Said to Bob, hey, why don't we hire Bo? He can get out of this valley. The valley can be very claustrophobic. Come down to Mississippi, and we'll teach him how... We'll teach him to be an instructor. So they bring him down there, and they start putting him through this orientation where he's not really teaching anybody anything yet. He's just kind of doing maintenance. He's cutting grass... You know, he's greasing the hinges, and he's, and he's driving the SEALs who are training there to the casinos down on the Mississippi River. <laughs> and he starts idolizing these guys, and he goes, I, I want to be one of them. And he knew he was good enough with guns, and he knew that he knew enough about it to do it. But they saw something. They saw that he was this kind of gentle-spirited kid who wouldn't hurt a fly, and he, would, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't cut out for it in their opinion. Well, he didn't like that, and one day he ups and tells Shaw or his manager down there that he's going to quit because he's going to France to join the French Foreign Legion and as you'll read in the book that does not go as planned <laughs> he doesn't speak a word of french he doesn't anticipate having to speak a word of french and he gets there and they tell him this isn't going to work out and he returns home his dreams crushed so he had these years of these of these elaborate dreams that didn't quite that, that never really worked out he went to alaska to go fishing um, at one point he auditioned for cirque du soleil <laughs> Wow. Because he was good enough. He was this unbelievably fit guy who lived this sort of like Bruce Lee monastic lifestyle. He slept on a mat every night. He was training himself to do these things. He was very much in his own head, as the guys in the platoon probably told you. And he was the real deal in the sense that he could go out in the backcountry and he was obsessed with Baird grills and obsessed with survivalism, and he actually walked the walk on this stuff. The problem is is that a lot of it, the line between reality and fantasy for him was very blurred.
2: It sounds like there's some delusions of grandeur
0: well, as, as a government uh, army psychiatrist later diagnosed him with, and a separate group of army psychiatrists, that he has this um, personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder. It's a rare disorder. It's sort of a schizophrenia light, where you don't have full psychotic breaks, but you live in your head, you live in your fantasies, and, and, and your ability to differentiate between reality uh, and your fa- and fantasy is is pretty affected. Cody Full at one point said, I think it was on Twitter, that it always seemed to him like Bo was living in a movie in his own head. And that's pretty much exactly right. He had right. cast
2: himself in his own film. Exactly. And so he washes out of the Coast Guard
0: then. So he washes out of the Coast Guard. He's still looking for for purpose. And there's there's scenes in the book where he goes back to, to Idaho and he is, you know, he's with this kind of like artistic crew in this coffee tea house that he was, that was run by his, his friend's mom. And Mariel Hemingway would stop by and her daughters who were artists and models from L.A. And they're all these rich, unique kids who he's trying to fit in with but meanwhile he grew up in a strict Christian house he's a military he's military obsessed he's ordering uh, gear and weapons to the shop and he's hiding them around the shop I remember so at the time I worked next door one of my odd jobs at the time was working next door at an art gallery and I would go in there and they had these weird weapons that you would find around why is this weapon like nunchucks and stuff they had a giant shillelagh there was this giant gnarled freaky-looking shillelagh that they kept under the cash register. And they would say, oh, Bo put it there. Well, who's Bo? Bo is this incredibly shy, blonde kid who would always sit in the background and, and and be super reserved. I remember him that way. When he was taken captive and his name got out there, I remembered him as the kid sitting in the background, not really interacting with customers.
1: That's crazy that you re- a just a weird flashback thing when his name appeared? You were like, I, I've seen this guy?
0: When when his, I don't remember exactly when I put two and two together. I mean, he was, you know, he was captured, he was captive for five years. But um, I knew the people at that coffee shop who he worked for and I knew some of his friends. So, yeah, when I saw his photo, I then remembered him as the kid sitting there. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was very shy. And, um, there was a brief period of time when I was working next door where like he was, he had like gone goth and, (laughs) and his friends had like painted his nails black and he was like, had his hair down in his eyes. But that was a brief moment. Back to your question. He comes back from France and he's working at the tea shop and in the book you'll, you'll see, um, people around him are just impressed because he's so shy, he's so reserved, but he's doing this intense stuff all the time. The dude's super intense. As we were saying, because he's in his head. So he's shoveling and he's building. He built to the extent that he built a lounge, a smoker's lounge behind the the building out of snow and ice with a shovel and a hose and with blankets. So he built like sofas and chairs and tunnels. It was a big snow year. He didn't even smoke. But he wanted a place for his friends to go hang out, and he was just so committed to it. And, and, and in the book, we interview people from that chapter of his life who said, I've never seen someone take something as you know, like, as fanciful an idea as let's have a smoker's lounge in the back and take it so seriously that he spent days shoveling and carving ice to make it real. And then how did he come to the army? So he doesn't know what he's going to do, right? He, the, the Coast Guard was a major failure for him. He, he washes out in this, in this emotional anxiety breakdown, which we detail in the book. We, because he just can't adapt to the lifestyle. Exactly. The, the whole thing, just just the reality versus what his perceptions and his hopes are going to be are just completely irreconcilable. He'd That's get, most of us when we join the military, <laughs> by the way. Right. It's part of how they break you in, right? <laughs>
2: Well, it's a, it's a big institution. You know, you're you're just another cog in the wheel. You're not you're not a hero. You're not a ninja.
0: You know, you're just
2: another guy. You're
0: not an individual. Right. 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 And he was overwhelmed by the reality of the situation that he had to save lives, even though it's what he intended to do, even though it's why he joined when he heard it and and was put in that position up close. And Coast Guard boot camp sounds pretty intense. And they're waking you up every hour in the middle of the night and they're putting you through stressful situations. And after three weeks of this, he has a total breakdown. And at roll call one night, he's not there. And his co-enlistees, they find him in the bathroom with a nosebleed and broken mirror and blood all over the walls and yikes yeah yeah and it was clear he didn't belong there and the coast guard made it very clear that he didn't belong there in the paperwork to discharge him with in in, in his separation paperwork and they said if if bo Bergdahl wants to rejoin the military in any way shape or form he needs a waiver he needs psychological counseling and he uh, and 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 otherwise he will not be allowed to enlist
2: wow and then he shows up at an army recruiter station. Well, then he
0: goes home, he builds the snow and ice caves, and he starts looking for his next purpose in life. And that includes he uh, his parents. So he was raised in this very religious household. I shouldn't leave this out. We have, uh, rewind a little bit here. He was homeschooled and raised by these really, I mean, good salt of the earth people, as Jim Mattis called them, but pretty intense uh, religious environment. Um uh, you know, his sister was fine coming up through it, but he wasn't. And that, 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 that happens in families as well. And he uh, was looking for other things to do. And when one opportunity that came up was to go to Uganda to teach self, well, to, to, to be part of a seminary group in Uganda at one of these villages. And they were having issues with the Joseph Kony army. And Bo says, well, I can go there and teach them self-defense because I'm a self-defense expert. So he tries to go to Uganda, but there's no spots left in the seminary. Then he comes home again. Well, he already was home. Then he, he um, decides, well, I'm going to audition for Cirque du Soleil because he was doing ballet, and he was super fit, and he sees what people do there, and he was amazed by what people could do with their bodies. Um, This actually didn't make it into the book, so (laughs) i can get it to you guys here exclusively, because one of the people I was friends with in town was one of his um, dancer yoga instructors who was helping him fine-tune his body. Bear in mind, this guy didn't drink. He ate incredibly healthy. He slept on a mat. He was a pretty fine-tuned athlete. So he decides he's going to do Cirque du Soleil, he auditions, but then he tells her, well, you know, I decided, um, I decided not to do it. And she said, well, why not? And he said, you know, I've heard Cirque du Soleil doesn't treat their employees that well. And if people get hurt and they don't do much about it. And that's the last she heard of it, and days later he, he, he rides his dirt bike to Twin Falls to an enlistment shop and, I mean, to a recruiting office and enlists in the army.
1: It's interesting because everything about his background that you're saying seems like he really is not an ideal candidate for the military. Although, as, as you said, he has the physical strength and all that. He looks at himself, obviously, as much more of an individual than you know a yeah. member of, of a unit.
0: Yeah, I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm not military, so you guys will know better than me. I, neither am I. So. How common is that?
2: I mean, in the Army, it, I, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine last night, actually, um, when I picked him up from the airport, is that you know, in the Army and being in an infantry platoon, it is very much a team environment. It's about the unit. It's not about you as an individual. And if you show up there and you think you're some kind of hero, you think you're some kind of badass, you get put in your place really quickly right. because you are just one part of the machine, you know, and, and everyone has to work together to make it out of there alive, right?
0: I think he – I mean – It is absolutely legitimate to say that that his case raises questions and flags and and holds lessons for how the military does mental health screening. That said, he was a very unique case that slipped through the cracks. He kept his head down. He didn't let people – he didn't let a lot of people in on – And he wasn't like a troublemaker per se. No, he was a good soldier who was one of the fittest guys in the platoon, according to everyone we talked to. They might not want to admit it, but he was one of the fittest dudes there. And he – he he memorized the the handbooks. He was always cleaning weapons. He knew what to do with the gear. He knew what to do. He knew the right things to do. The problem is what was going on in his head. And you know, to to, to, to ferret someone out like that is tough. Um, but by the time he was in Afghanistan, he had already showed people enough clues that he was perhaps on a different wavelength, and there were issues. And he had been flagged as a mental health issue. And who flagged him, and, and when was that? Well, the official, the the most official flagging we heard was, um, which which was brought up in the legal uh, hearings, was in Afghanistan by his first sergeant, who uh, or by a sergeant in his platoon who brought it up to first sergeant to say, "Hey, this guy's having some issues. Maybe he should talk to a to a stress counselor." Um, and the first sergeant said, "I don't want to hear about it. You know, your opinion doesn't matter." Um, but that was the, that's the most documented case. But I've also talked to other people who were in Alaska with him and thought that he was off from the start. So I think it, it, it comes down to how close people were paying attention, but the whole reason he got through just back again, cause we kind of glossed over this. He wouldn't have been, he would have been turned away at that recruiting station. He should have been turned away at that recruiting station. The Coast Guard had done its job right. and, and, and had done the proper paperwork that said he should not be recruited. He should not be allowed to enlist. But this was in the summer of 2008. This was as uh, uh, we, they knew that the surge was coming for Afghanistan. The problem, they needed bodies. The problem was everybody was in Iraq. So they needed to lower enlistment standards. And in the book, uh, Matt Farwell does some great reporting on this. Um, you know, He knew it from working in the Army for years. They lowered enlistment standards significantly. Now, and often that meant taking guys with, fel- you know, with felony records and with other rap sheets and a, v- a variety of issues. But it also meant taking guys like Bo Bergdahl, who the Coast Guard had done its job, said he shouldn't be in the Army, and then the Army takes him anyway.
2: When I was talking to people in his platoon in Afghanistan, I mean, they just described him as just the weirdest cat ever. (laughs) Um, That he was like trying to learn Pashto, which is not, you know, in of itself bad, but he was, uh, you know, off by himself most of the time, writing in his diary was one of the things I was told. He was just not somebody who was like socialized within the platoon. Um, And then we get into things where, from what I was told, he was like, he'd like ask his squad leader, like, what would happen if a gun went missing? You yeah, know yeah. stuff like this that, like in retrospect, like oh my god.
0: Well, he did. I mean, you talked to the guys who weren't his friends. He also had friends. Uh, there were mo- certainly more people who were not his friend. There were ultimately hundreds of thousands of people who <laughs> would not want to be his friend. <laughs> As one of our sources say, the army is an or- is an organism, and the army rejected Boberg Dolls an alien object yes. in the organism. Yeah. Um, he did have a couple of good friends in the platoon, though, uh, who we interviewed extensively for the book. Namely, their names are Joseph Coe and Gerald Sutton, both great guys. Both had their own commonalities with Bo. So um, Bo grew up homeschooled, no TV, eight miles out a Canyon in a very isolated environment with very religious parents. Joe Coe grew up as the son of mission as a missionary in Venezuela in a jungle missionary camp, hours from the nearest town. So they bonded over their over their commonalities. Gerald Sutton was a super smart guy. Went on later to get his Fulbright scholarship. Very bookish, he really looked up to Bo's ability to remember everything in the books, and he looked up to Bo as a physical specimen because the dude was fit. The dude did did appear to be a badass soldier when you just looked at him. I mean, I don't know if you've seen him physically in person, but he's got this perfect posture. He's he's real broad-shouldered, square-jawed. He looks like a soldier. That's another reason why I think he slipped through the cracks. He had the, he had the look. He had the look. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as you start talking to him, yeah, he's a weird cat because he's living with an undiagnosed disorder that has mm. him... Unable to really differentiate between fantasy and reality, it doesn't mean he's not smart. He's super smart, but he didn't have a formal education. He was homeschooled, and he didn't know he was. He was naive and idealistic to a degree that other people growing up in most places in this country can simply not relate to. He was it, and I think this is a um, really fascinating point. When you talk about how I got involved in this in the first place, well, why I started going down the deeper investigations. The day he was released, remember the video of him dead on the helicopter? Yeah. My first thought after seeing him after all, oh my god, he's alive was, "Wow, that looks just like Croy Canyon where he grew up." <laughs> so, the uh, Afghan Pakistani border, the altitude, the climate, the topography, the 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 humidity, the vegetation, it looks like where he grew up in Idaho. And he would go out in Idaho on these days-long solo trips in the backcountry. He would um just to get away, just to be away from uh, home or just to practice his survivalism skills. So when he's there as a soldier, he immediately sees a place that looks pretty familiar to what he knows growing up. So this concept that he comes up with, which is, is based on legitimate analysis of what's going on around him, but also a delusional idea that he should even consider this. But of going from one base to another in the middle of the night, eighteen miles. But that eighteen miles through backcountry is the same distance from his parents' house to town where he used to go all the time. So what sounds to other people like, "Oh, it can't be true. It's impossible. No one would want to do that." Well, he used to do that on his own anyway. And at some point years later, his parents were visited by a uh, you know o- OGA who comes knocking on the door, and he says, I've just come back from the, the border region, the Durand line, and I can't believe how much your backyard looks like it there. <laughs> the hinterlands. <laughs> the hinterlands of Idaho, yeah. I mean, and, and we've got photos um, from the family in the book, and we saw lots of photos of him as a kid in the backcountry. And, you know, for kids who grew up in the east coast of the Midwest where there's a mall, you know, a couple miles away, it's hard to imagine what it's like right, growing up right. there. right.
2: Yeah, well I mean it goes back to that rural versus urban uh, clash in America that we've talked so much about
0: in the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, there's a big cultural divide in this country. Absolutely. And look, it's also worth saying what he did in this act, which I'm sure everyone listening at this point knows what he did, it's it's indefensible, it's stupid, it's knuckleheaded to say the least, but he's not a traitor. Right, right. He didn't join the Taliban, he didn't sympathize with he the He wasn't Taliban. trying to defect. He wasn't trying to defect. Yeah. He wasn't even trying to desert. And that was the whole issue of, of that was somewhat surprising when he pled guilty because it came down to a definition of desertion. He was trying to do this stupid stunt that he admits was a stupid stunt to go to another base to get the attention of a general and to look like a, a hero, to look like a badass who who has this incredible war story. Um, and, and that is indefensible and he should be punished for it. But he goes on to, to, to five years in brutal isolation and captivity. Um, and, and he mans up and he does that captivity, spends over three years in a cage. And then he comes home to find out that he's been crucified. Yes. And the impact of that, I think, cannot be overstated. And uh, when people are out there—I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, I guess just to back up a little bit, and the book gets more into this in detail, so people do need to pick up the book. But what exactly—I I still want to get some more background on this—what exactly was the act that he wanted to do where he say he wanted to go to another base and have this war story? It's just confusing. I think it's confusing to the listeners of, of what he was trying to accomplish exactly.
0: Right. So he was a late deployer. He didn't deploy with the rest of his platoon because he got an infection in his foot. We go into much more detail in the reporting on how this all happened. But he gets over there late, and he is immediately struck when he gets to Fob Sharana by the luxuries and the 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 perks of life on an american forward operating base. He can't believe that there's real flush toilets, that there's spring mattresses. He hasn't even slept on a spring mattress at this point for like 8 years. In Koust province in the Christmas
2: of 2004-2005 on Fob Salerno, we had ice sculptures in the
0: chow hall <laughs> on Christmas Eve. I have a friend who worked uh, as uh, you know, who worked in the industry and traveled over there and came back with photos and showed us all in Idaho uh, walking around the FOB with the Burger Kings and the Pizza Huts, and we civilians were stunned. We couldn't believe it. So here's Bergdahl thinking he's going over to being in a trench, you know, or 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 uh, sleeping sleeping out in the rain and he's watching guys playing video games and eating Burger King and he's absolutely just floored and it just immediately starts screwing in his head screwing with his head and screwing with his expectations another part of of what his mental reality was is is he had spent three years training for what this was going to be his great war story and he gets over there and sees these things that he finds morally offensive right guys breaking the rules guys you know, um, talking about women in ways that he found offensive. It was just one thing after another that of just normal military culture that in his idealistic way was unacceptable. And that started to build up and build up to a point that, well, that also is, is, is then built upon by the illogical and, uh, the army logic of things that happen. Right now, I, I I was in Afghanistan, but I've talked to enough people who were to learn that this was not uncommon for people, for enlisted guys to think that leadership was making stupid orders and stupid decisions. So when when their leadership tells him to build a base on a cemetery, which you can read about in detail in, in, in the book, he is just floored, and when his uh, battalion commander at one point comes in and kicks over a grave in front of a bunch of Afghans, He is deeply appalled and offended by this. And he comes to the conclusion, and this is, so I think that's a fair analysis for him to be appalled sure. that, uh, that, uh, that an American lieutenant colonel would kick over a gravestone. St- However, that starts to mix with delusional concepts, that that same lieutenant commander is, is, hates their platoon so much, and they were a problem platoon. They were a misfit platoon. <sighs> that he was going to send that Bo becomes convinced he's gonna send them on a suicide mission to get rid of them. That was delusional. And so he organizes in his
2: in this this grandiose plot that he's gonna go for a midnight run from one
0: fob to the other, and in his mind what's that going to accomplish? He's gonna be Jason Bourne. He goes and buys a disguise, he gets cash, he's gonna bribe anyone who runs into along the way, he's gonna be a a, a hero like from the movies and the books that he's read. And he, what it will accomplish is he will make himself a legend and he will force them to pay attention to him and listen to his critiques. He's only been there for five weeks. So he was a private first class. So he already is way out of his depth to think that he's going to get an interview with a general because he has issues with his, with his, how his chain of command are making orders. And then what, midway, he was stopped? So not, yeah. So he he gets all his things together. He asks one of his, um, he asks Shane Cross if he can take a gun with him. They tell him if he takes a gun, his buddy will get in trouble for the missing gun. So he decides not to take a gun with him on this adventure because it would be breaking the rules. <laughs> so you can see how fragmented and contradictory his thought patterns are. So he, 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 he goes out there after midnight. He's, um, it's, it's, we go into detail based on his um, in-depth testimony about this to the Army. Um, I don't need to go into all the detail here. It's all in the book. Uh, but he, he realizes he's in over his head. He puts on his disguise at sunrise, and he just keeps walking. And sometime before noon, six Taliban motorcycles show up and roll him up.
2: And interestingly he did get America to pay attention to him for about 2 minutes and then I feel like we all just forgot about him for years.
0: Well, I mean, it's funny you say that uh what 4 days after after, after President Trump just tweeted about him again. We we he was he was uh famous for a brief moment because he was useful. Right. He is he is case uh, As soon as he was rolled up and smuggled out of there, he became useful to a variety of different entities and people at a variety of different times who all exploited him to the greatest degree possible. That includes the US political and entertainment system. So after the exchange, he became very useful because that was just a few months before the 2014 midterms. Um, And you have Donald Trump at the time in June 2014 being the first person in public to call him a traitor, despite having no evidence for that, zero evidence for that whatsoever the the perhaps the the juiciest irony of the whole thing is that the the best uh, analysis of those rumors of Bergdahl is a traitor. Where does that come from? Taliban propaganda. <laughs> Organized Taliban propaganda while he was captive of Taliban operatives setting up interviews, as you'll read in the book, with Western journalists, telling them that Bergdahl had converted to Islam, was teaching bomb-making seminars to Taliban fighters... Just totally over-the-top stuff that got picked up and disseminated in the Western press. And then you have Donald Trump out there a few years later just recycling Taliban propaganda for them.
1: Well, just to push back on that a little bit, though, I think some people feel just him walking off base and going AWOL in itself is an act of treason.
0: Yeah, I mean, legally, that's not true. It's it's not treasonous to go awol. It's not even treasonous to desert, uh, as as Jack noted. He was not defecting. He did commit. A crime. It's indefensible. It's stupid. He himself admitted it and ultimately pled I mean, guilty for maybe it. Maybe you could get him on something like sedition, but even then, I don't know. Well, they they couldn't even get him on the full charge of misbehavior for the enemy. I mean, the, the way the guilty plea came in and what it was a pretty narrow, tailored guilty plea to the fact that, that he had deserted for those 24 hours before he was rolled up. And another thing I wanted to bring up with you,
2: um, because there's a lot of heartburn in the special operations community and even in infantry units and about Bergdahl and the casualties, the KIAs and WIAs that these units took trying to find Bergdahl or get him back. And there's something true to that. But at a certain point, it stops being true because JSOC and other entities were using Bo Bergdahl as an excuse to get the green light for their uh, operations. So you'd submit the concept of the operations, the CONOP. And if you said it was something about finding Bo Bergdahl, it's much, likely to, much more likely to get approved than if it wasn't. So, I mean, there, there's some legitimacy to this this anger towards Bergdahl, but at a certain point, it just gets completely ridiculous, I think.
0: It's totally understandable if people would be angry at him, but I'm really happy to hear you talk about the, the pretext here on this show. I, I first reported that in Newsweek in 2015. It ended up being a major part of our book, American Cypher. Um, it it uh, Just to rewind it, let's go from, from the most salacious uh, charges backwards. So the most uh, extreme charge is that he's responsible for soldiers dying, and there are five or six, depending on the report, names listed on those. Well, all of those KIAs happened in late August and September. By late August and September, the army itself had already come to the conclusion that he was in Pakistan. So the The idea but but where it gets where it gets tricky and what I really want people to understand is that two things can be true at once right It can be true, and it is true that these guys were sent on missions to go look for Bo Bergdahl and that they believed that that's what they were doing and they did it without question and they did their jobs and they have a right to be pissed off about that. But it is also true that their leadership did know that Bo Bergdahl was no longer there. Right. And that they were using him as a pretext to do other things and to go stir up the Taliban hornet's nest. And this came out in legal hearings. Lieutenant Colonel Baker admitted in a legal hearing in San Antonio that they had more, that they, they, that, that, that period of time was in a more effective. Um, Campaign uh, in 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 stirring up and finding and rooting out Taliban than at any other point while he was there. So these two things can be true at once. To to rewind further to the to the special operations community and namely Jimmy Hatch. It can be true that Jimmy Hatch thought that he was on a mission that was called and ordered to go find and rescue Bo Bergdahl. I believe that he believed that, but I also know that that mission had been planned previously. And that and that rescuing Bo Bergdahl was not the primary objective, and that no one told Jimmy Hatch that. And and so, so to the I, I've been reporting this for years, and what stuns me is that no one at the top of the chain of command, who is responsible for burying this information about where he was and using it as a pretext to send guys out and do these things, has admitted it. And it brings up all sorts of ethical considerations about.
2: You know, lying to your troops and sending them out on one mission when really it's o- about something else um, that you're sending. I mean, when you're lying on a, on a con op and this came up when the uh, with the soldiers who were ambushed in Niger, there are a lot of issues about was the information on the conop correct? Was the information on the risk mitigation sheet correct? Or was it fabricated? And now what you're talking about is that commanders were sending up false reports to hire, saying that this operation is about Bo Bergdahl, when really everyone knew damn well that it wasn't.
0: Well, and I don't know how far up the chain we can say people knew damn well it wasn't, but we do know that at the very top, there was plenty of information, overwhelming information, that was available to General, General McChrystal, General Flynn, Mike Furlong, General Reeder, uh, and civilian leadership that knew overwhelming evidence, depending on the date, where he was or where he was headed at what, at what time. Okay? by July, By the middle of July, when the first video of him comes out, the U.S. intelligence agencies all come to the conclusion that he's in Pakistan. Meanwhile, they just keep these raids going. Even further back, um, July third, fourth, just days after he's gone missing, there are credible reports that Mike Furlong, who was working for General Flynn at the time, gets that shows where Bergdahl is and how how they had been misled and how they were chasing their tail. Mike tale. Furlong was with the DIA at the time. Mike Furlong is a is is an interesting shaped yeah, character yeah. who I hope readers will get into when they when uh when, when they dig into this book. Uh, Mike Furlong was a civilian intelligence. Um, uh, executive who was had been hired by McKiernan and then kept on by Flynn. And him and Flynn were having their first meeting on the day Bergdahl goes missing.
1: Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> all of this stuff that you speculated on, or I shouldn't say you speculated on before, but people speculated that we were discussing before of him teaching bomb making and all this stuff, obviously not true. But what, what did the Taliban do with him while he was you know captured by them?
0: Um, well, they... So it, it was five years, right? And it's broken down in in, in into different phases. Uh, but he was he, he was smuggled over the border within two or three days. We know that we can prove that by comparing and and, and cross referencing his testimony t- to the army, the army's own investigations, Furlong's interviews with us. It's it's all in the book. Um, but but the Taliban took him over the border uh intentionally led us teams on into lured and baited ambushes with 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 false reports that they had him um but they for the he he, he escaped twice in the first couple of days he runs away they then chain him to a bed for 3 months spread eagle wow torturing him, uh, beating him, cutting him with razors. That goes on for three months. But what do they want to get out of this?
1: I mean, he doesn't have any information that they could really use, right?
0: He was captured nine or ten days after David Rode escaped. David Rode was a New York Times editor and reporter who was the highest-valued Taliban hostage at that time in early 2009. David Rode escapes, uh, which you can read about in David Rode's book. Um, It's a pretty amazing story in itself. And then they get Bo Bergdahl, and all of a sudden, they have an even more valuable prisoner. Now, this isn't just an important civilian. This is a US military.
2: Did you uncover any information in writing this book about um, legiti- legitimate planned rescue operations, where you know, sort of like the bin Laden raid, we could have done a, a cross-border um, hostage rescue mission? And was anything like that even close to <clears throat> being launched?
0: It was uh, planned, but never close to being launched. But it's interesting you, you bring up Bin Laden because the plans to get Bergdahl. So uh, uh, as, as readers will find out in the book, um, the, the, the you know, JSOC community was, was tasked with drawing up legitimate rescue operations. Those were never ordered. Those were never taken off the shelf, but they were drawn up. Mm -hmm. And there was a high mission, and there was a a high and a low option. And the low option was two teams, two helicopters, over-the-border stealth operation. It was never ordered until two years later when it was taken off the shelf and adapted as Operation Neptune Spear. Oh, really? So the preliminary planning was for to get Bergdahl back? The planning that went into the Bin Laden raid, the blueprints, as we were told by two different sources, were, were adapted from blueprints drawn up to get Bergdahl back. That's really interesting. i would never heard that before. It's, there's, uh, there, there's a lot of good nuggets in this book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, it, it's, it's, it's been a challenge uh, telling people just you know, one or two things in this book, because honestly, the, the entire narrative of Bergdahl is so misconstrued, and it's so frustrating and kind of surreal to be a reporter on a case like this, where you're looking at all these facts, and then you look on social media and you watch TV, and the, the average person who, who, who is informed by our media right now has a version of truth that simply isn't based in reality. It strikes me, and maybe I'm completely off
2: base and you can
0: weigh in on it, that the actual,
2: the way we actually got Bergdahl back, if anything, the thing I can think of that it bears the most resemblance to maybe is the uh, Betancourt operation down in Colombia, where JSOC was involved in the periphery of it, but it wasn't a a real hostage rescue mission. You know, there's some sort of quid pro quo.
0: Uh, is that with the with the contractors who were kept for five the years? The Dynacore guys, yeah, were yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's a lot of overlap with those guys because those guys were also brought back to the same rehab uh, facility in San Antonio that Bergdahl worked through and, and um, interviewed by the same debriefers that Bergdahl oh, was interviewed by. Yeah, I mean, Bergdahl comes home, and this is another. Uh, this is probably one of the more stark moments of uh, narratives versus you know, popular narratives versus reality is when he comes back to San Antonio. When he comes back is when everyone hears his name here in early 2000, in, in June of 2014. And the media just blows up with this story, yep. right? So uh, that was shortly after the Rose Garden debacle with his parents were invited out and, and spontaneously invited to speak. even though And they the didn't. dad
2: had the ZZ Top beard <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the, his wife was like wearing a headscarf. No headscarf. Uh, am I not
0: remembering that right? No, the ZZ top beard. Yes, <laughs> and I think it's more accurate to call it a ZZ top beard than a Taliban beard. The guy's yeah. Well, I, I remember it raised,
2: it raised questions at the time. Like, what's going
0: on? Absolutely, here? and it didn't look right. And 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 sources for the book. Uh, you know, at cabinet level, sources told us why they thought that was inappropriate, and White House uh, aides admit that that it was not a good idea. Um, but it was just it was it was it couldn't have been more perfect for what had already been planned as a political operation. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's back, and he is immediately looked at as an incredible goldmine of intelligence and information. When they start realizing that here's a kid who has for five years been cataloging his memories, who, yes, he fucked up, but now he wants to do something to help. He wants to make up for it. He's, 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 he's cataloging these memories about, about who's holding him, where they're holding him, and they start debriefing him, and he starts just giving up incredible amounts of information that uh, within a couple of weeks is turned into over a dozen classified reports And then the CIA ends a nine-month drone ceasefire and starts hitting all these (laughs) targets. This has never been reported. It's reported in the book. People need to read the book. The CIA had a nine-month drone ceasefire that ends two weeks after Bergdahl gets back and miraculously starts taking out Haqqani targets in Western Pakistan.
2: (laughs) Fucking Bergdahl
0: getting his revenge. Well, and... Bergdahl got awards. He was awarded twice for his for his behavior and conduct in captivity, in large part because he turned into such a gold mine, to use the words of his Pentagon debriefers. Now, while he's doing that, on TV, Richard Grinnell goes on TV the day he's returned and is the first person to say in public that Bergdahl was going to look for the Taliban, or as you said, to defect. Richard Grinnell was a political operative so shady and unscrupulous that Roger Stone told me in my reporting he considered Richard Grinnell too shady to work with. <laughs> Where's Richard Grinnell now? I don't, where is he? He's the ambassador to Germany. Holy shit. He's Trump's ambassador to Germany. He's a Republican operative. He's a loyal follower. He's a loyal water carrier. He's, he's good at what he does. He's a knife fighter. And now he's the... <clears throat> He's the ambassador to Germany. He also arranged with his assistant Brad Chase those guys originally to go to come up here to New York and to do their interviews and to talk about Bergdahl in ways that some of them felt were twisted and turned into a spectacle, as Gerald Sutton told us.
1: It's it's so crazy when you hear of some of these people who work in the administration that we don't you know, I cause I was unaware of that. We have that and it's like last episode we had Bob Bear on and talked about how Eric Prince's sister Betsy is in the Havas, administration. Yeah, you know. there's just there's a lot of strange characters in this administration.
0: The and 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 a lot of them have done helpful things to for Trump and for the Republican Party at moments that were important. Look, the Bergdahl smear campaign, which took a guy who did something. I want to repeat, indefensible. I am not here defending Bo Bergdahl.
2: But in, in a lot of ways, it's about the institution exploiting somebody who, at the end of the day, is mentally ill. And using him in ways that you know that, that that aided them and helped them.
0: And and when you have Rick Grinnell going out there and starting that campaign, when you have Donald Trump at the time, not even running for president, going on Fox News and calling him a traitor. By the end of that month, June 2014, Obama's approval ratings hit their lowest point of his entire presidency. And then the whole narrative was we traded these guys from Guantanamo Bay for For Bergdahl. For a traitor. For a traitor, And people died looking for him. And those things are not true. And you don't have to call Bo Bergdahl a hero to say those things aren't true. Right, right. The point of our book is to is to talk about the facts of the case, which, as far as we're concerned, are more interesting than these ridiculous soap opera cartoon narratives that have been propagated by so much of our media, not just Fox News.
1: Are, are a lot of networks, I mean, scared to have you guys on because a lot of networks are responsible for building up this narrative that is, as you're saying, is hyperbole or just not true.
0: I'd love to talk to Jake Tapper. Who was one person who was just recycling things he was hearing from sources at the time. And look, I get it. As a journalist, you want your you 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 have your relationships with your sources and you and you tend to believe your sources. And they're
2: close to DC, they're getting the leaks out of the Pentagon every day.
0: However, they were saying things that were completely, completely outrageous, like that Bergdahl was responsible for what happened at Cop Keating in October. So that's five months after he goes missing. And to say that Bergdahl was responsible for, that, for those decisions, which were leadership mistakes, just goes to show how much the idea that we can, that we can use Bergdahl as a whipping boy for yeah. everything that went wrong in a war that was not winnable, it just, go, it just goes on and on.
2: Well, and it shows how duplicitous the senior officers are in the military as well, that they'll try to pawn it off on some private who did something stupid um, that they'll do
0: almost anything to absolve themselves from military failures. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it's too bad there aren't more guys like, you know, like Basevich, whose career ended when he did take responsibility, right?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, even people like uh, like um, General Votel, I mean, I've seen fall on the sword a few times, you know, say, yes, this is these were my guys. I'm responsible
0: for it, you know. We met a lot of people with a ton of integrity, enlisted guys and officers. The only officers who refused requests for interviews were McChrystal, Petraeus, and Flynn. (laughs) Who knew, who had the information where Bergdahl was when those men were being sent out on missions? When people say, well, guys were hurt and killed looking for Bergdahl, I would like them to ask McChrystal, Petraeus, and Flynn what they knew when those guys were sent out on those missions.
2: Well, there are powerful people who want to lock in the narrative. uh, What you're describing to me sounds very similar to some of the stuff when I interviewed... uh, You remember the movie Horse Soldiers came out, Mm -hmm. and I interviewed some of those guys who were on those ODAs who went in early on in the war... And they very much had the story that you know senior officers, the colonels, want to control the narrative. They do not want enlisted guys, they don't want NCOs, they don't want junior officers speaking out because it ends up contradicting their narrative when they go on CNN and make themselves look like heroes.
0: Look, and I mentioned Johnny Rice earlier. He told me in one of our first interviews. He goes, "Yes, I don't expect civilians to understand it, but I and I know they were lying to us. But I support what they did because it was the right thing to do at the time. That leadership had a decision to make." Which was either admit that Bergdahl was gone in Pakistan, our ally, and call off the searches, or use it as a pretext to do to fight the war they wanted to fight the way they wanted to fight it at a critical moment.
2: That's wild, and I mean, so I mean, your book is American Cipher, and I mean, I, that's obviously a reference, I, th- I guess, to. Bergdahl himself, that he's an enigma.
0: He's an enigma. He's a code to help us understand a war that I think we still, as a nation, are unable to really explain and unable to really understand, and that history is going to look back on and tell us things that will shock us 20 years from now, but that we already know are already available. The fact that we give so much money and aid to Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, who themselves are funding and training (laughs) the Taliban that we are fighting. Afghanistan is this swamp that pulled us in and just sunk deeper and deeper in a very Vietnam way. Or another metaphor I like for Afghanistan is it's the hole in the center of your record player when everything revolves around it and the music just keeps playing, but you never get to the center because we have created this structure for 40 years now of funding and training the people who we're fighting against.
1: What do we know about where Bo Bergdahl is now? I was going to ask the same thing.
0: We don't know much because he's under legal advice not to talk, you know, not to speak out, and because he knows he's a marked man. I mean, he came back, and and his family and friends all received death threats. Obviously, he uh, there's still people out there who'd like to kill him. I just think what I'd like people who who would who would um, be inspired to, to to do violence to Bo Bergdahl to think about is the fact that he spent three and a half years in a cage. He spent five years in isolated captivity. He manned up and he did that. He screwed up in a big way, but he did his time, and he paid his price in that way, in ways that no POW had since Vietnam. And when he comes home, when people call him a traitor, and when people say he's responsible for these things without evidence, they should think about the impact of that on the reality of what he did. And one of the reasons our book has so much good sourcing, one of the reasons why we have almost 900 endnotes, is because people in the military and the government who knew the truth were eager to talk to us. People who were close to this case wanted the facts to get out. Military guys who were still in, uh, officers who, who, who were risking their own careers and who are reported in this book under pseudonyms, spoke out to us because they didn't like the way that this story had been politicized. They didn't like the fact that, that Gold Star families had been lied to.
1: So is he definitely in the United States? Is he on witness protection or anything like that?
0: Um, I think he's in the United States. I don't think he's under witness protection. Um, I think he's trying to get on with his life. Uh, the last time he spoke to the media, it was to a Hollywood screenwriter before he had a lawyer. And as readers will find out in the book, that didn't turn out very well for him.
1: Yeah. I I, I would just, I'm sorry. I would just wonder how he goes around under the same alias of Bo Bergdahl in, in daily life. I would think that's a huge obstacle that you would probably legally. Yeah. I would, I would think you legally change your name at that point.
0: Yeah. It's a good question that, that, that I can't answer, but, um. He, he, uh, you know, he's not particularly recognizable, but you're right. His name, the is name, pretty, the yeah. name alone, but you know, he's a loner and, um, I think he wants to just get on with his life. I know he wanted to finish his education and people who meet him and people who work with him, uh, as they testified in his legal hearing are left with good impressions. He's not he's low drama. You know, one uh, uh, woman who worked with him in Fort Bragg testified in his in his court hearing last year, two years ago, that uh, he he was uh, a source of less drama than most of the guys she worked with come back from the war because a lot of guys are damaged. He was obviously damaged. But he did his job. He kept his head down.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine the amount of trauma that dude must have been through. I mean, I have to imagine that he ha, would have severe psychological issues from being in captivity. Not, I mean, he had no one to speak English to for five years. Five years. Yeah.
0: yeah. Occasionally, when they would do the videotapes, there'd be someone who could speak English. But there's no doubt he was traumatized, deeply traumatized, and it'll be with him for life. And people say, well, what difference does that make when you look at the injuries and you look at the lives destroyed and people looking at him? And that was the tension in the sentencing portion of his hearing. It is It's like you're holding
2: him accountable for the entire fucking war. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And, and I think that's why the judge made the right decision. But, but in the book, uh, people reading the book will get towards the end where, uh, reporting from the legal hearing and about the, the devastating injuries that were brought up at the, at, at his sentencing, uh, Sergeant, um, Master Sergeant Mark Allen, who was shot in the head on one of the missions in the first week. And there is no, there is no questioning that this man and his wife and his family have been put through hell. Uh, so, But people were confused. Well, then why wasn't Bergdahl put in prison? And it's because you cannot prove a perfect causal link between those two things. That mission right, that, right. that Master Sergeant Allen was sent on had been planned prior to Bergdahl going missing. They just hadn't sent it out yet. <laughs> So Bergdahl goes missing, and they go, now we can send out this mission, and we'll send it out with guys who aren't prepared, and who aren't geared up, and who aren't don't have the proper supplies. And are all of those decisions Bo Bergdahl's fault? The defense said no, the prosecution said yes, and readers of the book will find out what happens. So what's the big takeaway for, for you and uh, your co-author, uh, Matt
2: Farwell? I mean, did you come away from this thinking like, I, I mean, I think you alluded to it, that there's just a lot of stuff in this war that's been glossed over, deliberately buried, covered up.
0: U.S. political dysfunction is mind-boggling. It, it's, right, it's, a, it's, it, it's our weakness and our strength that we have a system of checks and balances. But when every agency is constantly checking the other one and the warfare that's happening in Washington is more intense than the warfare happening uh, to our enemies we're bogged down under the weight of our own system. Um, that's my takeaway. This, this book is about government dysfunction, political dysfunction during the Obama years when one could argue the government was actually functioning relatively smoothly. You had a lot of career people in, in these positions. And we still couldn't figure it out because the divisions within our own system are so deep that getting a unifying policy was almost impossible.
2: Man. It's incredible. You've got me excited to read the book now, that's for
0: sure. Well, good. I, uh, there's, there, there's, there's a lot in it for people to take home. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of good to be said for where Bo comes from. You know, Part of why I'm so passionate about this is because I lived in his hometown for a long time. I saw people, mutual friends who were on the receiving end of death threats over a period of years. And anytime his name would come up on Fox News for a legal hearing, Another wave of death threats called into friends of his in Idaho. And wow. our country shouldn't, shouldn't have to be put through these sort of uh, seizures of, of, of self-hatred and of internal strife um, just because it's good politics. Yeah. Right, where we eat each other alive. And that is only getting worse. It's not getting better. The media has some real questions to answer. I'm glad you brought up the mainstream media because, yes, we should be talking about this case. We shouldn't sweep it under the rug. People should be talking about the Bo Bergdahl case and figuring out what it meant and what this cipher holds in it for years. So CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, if you're listening, <laughs> this is a legitimate issue that, that needs to be discussed.
1: Have Michael Ames on. I, I, I think that this is a really important book. Because, as you're saying, there's just so much misinformation out there, and it's important to counter that. So, the book ha- is out right now. It's American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl, and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan, co written with Matt Farwell, uh, or Farwell, right? Uh, it's out now. And Michael regularly also writes for Newsweek, The Daily Beast, a lot of other sites. Uh, the website is michael-ames.com, michael-ames.com, at M-I-R-K-E-L on Twitter. At MGM Games on Instagram. Uh, so check him out there. Before we wrap things up, as always, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash 1 crate, the Pro crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our premium crate. These are all available at crateclub.us. And right now, we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off all. Uh, 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live, so get on it right now. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFTREP, for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up to the SpecOps channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the SpecOps channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like this guy next to me, Jack Murphy, of course, and the many guest writers who pop up as well. Unlimited access to NewsRep on any device, unlimited access to the app, join the War Room community, invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial up now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android, and our homepage is softrepradio.com. Where you can see that full archive of shows, including the guys who served with Bergdahl, Matt Beerkant, Cody Full. We've had Matt Beerkan on several times, and I, I slept over Matt Bierkant's house when <laughs> I went to South. I so I'm a huge, as a lot of these listeners know, I'm a huge like '80s hair metal fan. And Dokken <laughs> played their last U.S. show with like the original group before they played Canada in, and uh, played Japan actually in South Dakota. And I was like, I have to fucking go see this. <laughs> and uh, Matt Camp was like, hey, come stay with me, man. And uh, so, yeah, I got to stay with Matt, who's a great guy. Uh, I We interviewed Cody once. I didn't really get to know him the way I know Matt, but Matt is awesome. Um, yeah, and, and that's really it. This has been a fascinating interview. And, and it actually uh, really just changes the narrative of even what I knew because having those two guys on – A lot of what was echoed is a lot of what we heard, and I honestly think a lot of those guys who even served with Bergdahl don't know the backstory that you know. So think it's even important for those guys to read this
0: hey have us on together i mean I, I i feel for what those guys went through i am no way diminishing what those guys did or and they have a right to be angry
1: and, and they are i just I, think, I mean there's a picture of matt veerkant meeting uh chris Peranto in a fuck bo bergdahl <laughs> like they're not they're not fans of the guy no
0: and, and and i understand it i just think they should know the full story i mean i mean what the fact that bo berg look everyone was looking for bo bergdahl bo bergdahl became like the catch-22 of the whole war if you were there you were Looking for him, even though he wasn't there, <laughs> and this 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 carried on. This surreal kind of like joke carried on to the legal hearings. One of my favorite moments: of these legal hearings, which there were all these resources at Fort Bragg devoted to these hearings. Right? They would they would have uh, like uh, vans and buses, and they'd be all empty because there were only six reporters there for the case, and they'd have all these vans and buses and all these PAO. I mean, dozens of PAO guys coming in from Fort Bliss and from California for this event. And then they just stand around doing nothing. And they would tell us that that if um, that they started saying, Bo Bergdahl ruined my day, as a kind of like catch-all <laughs> phrase, if anything went wrong, if they got a flat tire, if some paperwork wasn't right. <laughs> what happened to you today? Oh, Bo Bergdahl fucked up my day. <laughs> <laughs> Bo Bergdahl fucked up my war. Bo Bergdahl fucked up my day. At some point, the people who keep thinking Bo Bergdahl fucked everything up need to look at the army and how resp- where its responsibility lies.
2: Yeah, and it's a painful thing for a lot of people to do. Um, it calls into question a whole series of different things, actually. But um, this is an important interview, I think. I think this is going to be a lot like the interview we did with uh, Ed Durack about the extortion 17 crash that sheds a whole hell of a lot of light on Pissed something. Pisses some people off, yeah. Pisses some people <laughs> off. Sheds a lot of light on some stuff that was obscured. Um, and uh, I'm, one last thing. I mean, it makes me wonder. You were just talking about
1: Trump calling Bergdahl a traitor in the p- past few days. Do you think President Trump possibly doesn't even know this whole story? I guarantee you he doesn't. <laughs> Are you, I don't need Michael to answer that. I mean, <laughs> people assume, though, he's the president. He knows what's going on. You I know? don't think
0: he does. I don't think he cares. But he does need to be corrected, and he does need to be held to account for it for spreading misinformation that was designed by the Taliban to break American morale.
1: Good answer. Well, once again, follow Mike on Twitter at m i r k k e l Michael Ames.com Anything else that you're
0: promoting? Um, just our book, American Cipher. You can get it at your <laughs> local bookstore or Amazon if you choose. But um, it really is worth a read if you follow the news at all. This is we wrote it as a, as a news story. You know, it is. A, uh, I like to think that uh, we have enough characters. We are the only people to interview Bergdahl's parents. Um, they, we, we sat with them, Farwell and I, at different points over time for more than 20 hours, learned about their personal relationships with Jim Mattis, with Michael Mullen, about their deep background, about the fact that Bob Bergdahl was the marquee speaker at Rolling Thunder a few years before Donald Trump was the marquee speaker at Rolling Thunder. So it's been a weird time in America, and this story, I think, gets into just how weird it's been and why. Unreal.
1: Thanks so much yeah. for coming in. Thank you. Thank you, you very it was much. a lot of
0: fun, yeah. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.